Hey there, I'm Staff Sergeant Johnny Joey Jones. During my time serving with the United States Marine Corps, I was deployed as an explosive ordnance disposal, or what you might call a bomb technician, to both Iraq and Afghanistan. While I've seen and experienced some things that most people could never imagine, even I was amazed by some of the stories you're about to hear in this podcast. From Ed Calderon, a former paramilitary law enforcement officer from Mexico. Here is his story. We screamed out, these guys aren't cops. As they were put into a van, my friend uh, took out a folding knife and slashed one of them across the neck. You're listening to a story told by a man, not even 40 years old, who has survived a lifetime of harrowing situations fighting drug cartels in Mexico. Uh, He was found uh, probably 12 hours later uh, with his uh, ID um, screwed into his forehead, tortured to death, basically. You know, it scared the out of all of us. (laughs) Known by many as the Sneak Reaper, Ed Calderon has become something of an international legend because of the skills he cultivated, learning to survive moments like that. Welcome to Alchemy of Violence, Narcos, Reapers, and Survival. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Johnny Joey Jones. Ed's boyish charm and teddy bear smile betrays a resume soaked in blood and a mindset that makes elite special operators nervous and maybe a little jealous. The Sneak Reaper was generous enough to share his story with us in a series of wide-ranging interviews while working south of the border during the summer of 2020. You can hear proof of Ed's environment throughout the podcast in the form of a rooster crowing in the background. A rooster whose story you'll want to hear. At the tail end of the year 2006, things were starting to look more like a war zone just a few miles south of the U.S. border. President Calderon is taking a tough stand against uh, organized crime and drugs. The Mexican government is calling in its army to try to stem the tide of violence in that country. Mexico's president was beginning a military-backed offensive on the drug cartels that had been kidnapping, killing, and corrupting his people for years. Since December 2006, when President Felipe Calderon vowed to defeat the cartels, police officers and soldiers put their lives on the line every time they head out to do their jobs. Violent clashes, kidnappings and gunfights in the street have killed some 4,000 people, including 450 police, soldiers and prosecutors. That moment grew into a conflict that would claim some 60,000 lives over the tenure of Mexican President Felipe Calderon, who shares no relation to Ed. But the violence certainly didn't end there. Notorious drug kingpin Joaquin El Chapo Guzman is on the run after breaking out of a maximum security prison for the second time. And it appears he used some secret tunnel. To this day, the number of deaths attributed to Mexico's drug cartels since that offensive began is more than 150,000. Those tallies fail to include the missing persons cases in the country over that same period, which exceeds some 73,000. And they certainly include some Americans. Funerals today for some of the American Mormons killed in Mexico. Two eight-month-old twins are among those being buried. 
The brutal massacre occurred in a mountainous area near the Sonora Chihuahua border where rival cartels are fighting a vicious turf war. Ed was barely into his 20s when he found himself smack in the middle of those opening salvos in Mexico's war on the cartels. He was working as a law enforcement officer when he turned on the TV one day to find his president was declaring war on an enemy that Ed had known his whole life. A lot of my friends basically went to work for the cartels uh, right off the bat. Ed clearly took a different route than his peers and has now become an icon among elite U.S. veterans and civilians alike thanks to his not-so-ordinary skill set cultivated in a career fighting against Mexico's ruthless criminal syndicates. That was my first, uh, my first lesson into how to get out of handcuffs by a 15-year-old kid. It's a career that Ed miraculously survived, something that can't be said for many of his peers. That's when we kind of realized that we were we were uh, being targeted, that, uh, that people had eyes on us. He's been living in the U.S. some three or four years, fleeing the country where he was raised with the help of a few American Marines he was lucky enough to call friends. More on that in episode four. He began discovering that his peers in the U.S., who were steeped in tactical knowledge and survival training themselves, were eager to learn from his experiences. So he started sharing his one-of-a-kind expertise with an audience that went beyond special operators. Most people think that all the stuff that I show is just, oh, this is just in case you get kidnapped by the cartels. Uh, But you can apply this to a lot of bad situations. From first aid classes to his more unorthodox and signature methods of emergency preparedness, Ed says his courses are in demand from civilians, law enforcement, and special operators during this pandemic. The whole uh, minimalistic approach that I take to things isn't uh, isn't uh, because that's what I wanted to do. That's because I didn't have a choice. He is now known by many as the Sneak Reaper. A moniker we'll explain in detail later. Emblematic of both himself and a life philosophy of self-reliance forged in flame. From his careers past and present to his family and childhood influences, and what he sees as an unprecedented uptick in cartel violence happening right now. This is his story in his words. My name's uh, Ed Calderon, uh, born and raised in Tijuana, Mexico. Tijuana is uh, naturally, uh, it's the purgatory of Latin America in a lot of ways. It used to be it was one of the major crossing points for most migrants that wanted to make their way into the United States. And uh, it was like a waiting room for people, you know. Uh, Some people cross and then were deported. And sometimes people stay and live in the waiting room. (laughs) When I was growing up, it was pretty uncommon to to be born in Tijuana. Most people uh, uh, migrate here or come here as kids. Uh, I was born in Tijuana. my parents were from Guadalajara, moved to the border because of their parents wanted to look for jobs. Tijuana has always been kind of like a like a bastion of opportunities and uh, and, and work. So, you know, they moved here. Uh, two brothers, uh, one foster brother, and spent my uh, young years uh, basically just running around one of the most trafficked uh, border cities on the planet. Not just uh, people, but also drugs and, and guns. It was pretty safe when I was growing up. I mean, safe and, you know, Mexico safe, which is probably a different type of safe. 
but it was uh, it wasn't as as, as rowdy and and as uh, you know there wasn't as much murders as as there are now. Uh, it's a border city, so I grew up with a weird cross cultural like American culture on TV and and uh, shopping in the U.S. on Christmas and. It's a weird kind of place to grow up in where you're uh, kind of like uh, exposed to two nationalities in a way. Uh, that's where I got my English growing up in Tijuana. It's like a, a skill set you have to have, uh, language skills. If you don't have them, you, you don't get far when it comes to the job market. You know, I started getting into skateboarding and to, you know, getting into trouble with my friends, uh, graffiti, all that, all that stuff when I was growing up. I was a, I was a, I was pretty reckless, and I liked the whole adrenaline rush. Um, studied medicine for a while. 9/11 happened. Another plane just flew what? into the second tower, and it basically put the economy in the toilet. And I couldn't afford to stay uh, in medical school, so I had to look for options. Uh, eventually, I found a newspaper article that wanted basically kids, young unmarried uh, men without uh, any kids um, for a government position. Uh, basically, it was a, a paramilitary type uh, police uh, organization that they were forming, and uh, nobody believed that I could go through with it, and nobody believed that I could actually do it myself. So I decided to shave my long hair off and uh, ship myself out to, to, the, uh, to the academy. There was a whole phenomenon back then called uh, Los Narco Juniors. The Narco Juniors were basically uh, cartel guys that came not from the poor communities, not from the rural communities, but from, from some of the well-off uh, families in Tijuana. So you would have these kids that were basically bored and rich and uh, that they started going into cartel activity from trafficking to, you know, uh, murders for hire, abductions. That type of thing, you know. A few of my friends uh, growing up went into that uh, went into that life of high so high paying. You know, it was a lot of money to be made. Very dangerous. The whole narco cultura was taking off. Basically, the 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 glorification of the narco or the cartel culture. Uh, you know, you would go to some of the nightclubs and you would see some of the guys wearing a silk uh, a silk shirt. Forty forty thousand dollars worth of gold on their on their hands and maybe on their chest. Um, you would see you'd see a lot of people with a lot of expensive things, but with bad teeth. You know that's the way you would you you could you could tell some of the new money over the old money. You know, bad teeth, but he's wearing about you know five thousand dollars worth of clothes. That's a pretty interesting way of telling some of these guys apart. Uh, yeah, a lot of my friends basically went to work for the cartels uh, right off the bat. You know, uh, they, they couldn't get into a college, they couldn't get into university, and uh, public service didn't interest them. <laughs> uh, so they, so a lot of them actually went through the, went that route. They sell you an image, they sell you a dream. You know, the uh, easy money, the uh, celebrate, uh, the, the whole Robin Hood figure built around some of these cartel uh, personalities. Um, you know, a lot of these guys basically take the money that they make and, and invest some of that money into the towns they're from. And they're the heroes in the story, you know? 
in Mexico, the cops are never the heroes. They're always the villains. Um, so you, if you take that uh, government position, that government job, you're a villain. And that's uh, a... <laughs> That's, a, that's an interesting way kind of to think about it. You know, uh, funny to think that for a time, I didn't tell a lot of people what I did for a living. Even close people in my family didn't know that I, where I worked because it was a thing to be ashamed of in a way in Mexico. Oh, you're a cop? Well, you know, you're probably corrupt. Uh, you probably do stuff for the cartels or whatever, you know. There was just no room for or any sort of uh, consideration as far as you were actually doing your job. Uh, on the other hand, you would see some of my friends that went into cartel work and their mothers would boast about their kids making money. You know, oh, look at the house that my uh, kid gave me, that, that type of stuff. And that was applauded. You know, there's a reason why I nicknamed Mexico the, the, the upside down, because a lot of the values, the, uh, you know, flip. Uh, in, in, in some of these uh, in some of these communities um, and it's not just the young people some some of the older generation you know actually actually have the same mindset the kind of the same outlook uh, celebrating celebrating uh, criminality over any sort of government rule because you know they're, they basically have been exposed to a corrupt government that goes back to the revolution you know um, so it was interesting going into that line of work and having to hide that from people. For those who know Ed Calderon and those who will come to know him, a major inspiration for everything he does is his mother. And while she didn't approve of his career choice, her role in sending him down that path and helping him come out the other side is undeniable. I had a very close relationship to my mom and she was a... Uh, I don't know. She was the uh, the crocodile Dundee, the uh, the uh, the survival expert. The you know she, she was she she knew a lot of things about life, and she had a myriad of skill sets, including uh, she was a nurse. So she taught me how to be a healer from her early age, and how to be kind of uh, involved in the community. Anybody needed an injection, or somebody had a weird rash, or somebody was bitten by a spider, that type of stuff. Uh, or, uh, around the neighborhood where I grew up, uh, my mom would get a knock on the door in the middle of the night and I would go and hold a flashlight for her, right? Uh, that was my mom. Um, she, very Catholic, she was a devout Catholic. Uh, she kind of uh, wrote, uh, raised us with that, uh, with that in the background. <laughs> very strict, uh, a very strict upbringing. <laughs> A lot of uh, there was a there was a little bit of a you know ear pulling and you know people that are Mexican have Mexican mamas will know what that's about. My mom went through a horrible childhood that she kind of every now and then she would talk about. She would write about it. I still have her notebooks where she would write some of her experiences when she was a kid. Uh, she grew up in a very rough uh, Tijuana neighborhood. Uh, uh, so she she had experiences with uh, guns and people shooting and that type of stuff. Uh, she she was she was the one that would uh, you know scream at my dad to stop when we would see a roadside accident. You know, my dad didn't want to stop. <laughs> uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, you know, my dad was a sensible one. <laughs> and uh, you know, every time we would see some sort of roadside accident, my mom would kind of run in there. And of course, I would always run behind my mom to try and help her out. She knew how to apply tourniquets, you know. She knew how to 
suture. You know, she and she know all these weird, uh, weird things that when when you're a kid, you know, that you consider them weird. Uh, later on in life, I'm somewhere uh, working uh, professionally with armed people, and uh, we're doing pretty important work, and lives are on the line, and I go back to my 13, 12, or 8-year-old self holding a flashlight for my mom. Uh, she was putting a, an improvised tourniquet on somebody, and I'm kind of replicating the same thing she showed me uh, just off instinct. I, I thought, well, at least that's what it feels like, you know? She definitely kind of kind of uh, influenced uh, what I what I what I later later kind of picked as a life path. Sometime in the early '90s, uh, she, me, and her were. I was holding her hand outside of a gas station, and uh, it, there was an open air market next to it, and um, these cars rolled up with people that apparently were cops, but to this day I don't know if they were or not. Um, and one of them basically told you know somebody to stop that they were the police. And then the other guy in the other and the and the other guy in the passenger side it took out a uh, a little Draco, it's like a small AK-47 rifle uh, from the floorboard of the car, and uh, just just you know shot this person. Um, seemed to the guy who was shot seemed to be a kid, probably 17, 18, some somewhere along those lines. Um, my mom, without missing a beat, grabbed me by the neck, spun me around behind her, and got me behind the engine block of a car. Probably like a, an Impala or something like that. I can't remember. It's a pretty big car there. That, that was like a, that was my first exposure to some of this uh, cartel violence. Um, this was kind of the, at the... At the uh, in the 90s, where where the uh, Ariana Felix cartel was having had a stranglehold uh, when it came to anything that happened in Tijuana. We now have in custody the head of one of the most notorious and dangerous drug cartels in history. Francisco Javier Ariano Felix was brought by the United States Coast Guard by boat into San Diego, where he was taken into custody by the DEA and U.S. Marshals. Ultra-violent uh, cartel kind of kept control over things. I remember my mom kind of talking to me about that whole thing later on. You know, I was young, really young, uh, probably 13, probably 13 or something like that. She was trying to explain what happened. And uh, so I said, well, like, why did, I asked her, like, why did the cops do that uh, to that person? You know, I was like, that's witness an assassination, basically. And uh, she said, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, hopefully, uh, Hopefully you'll never have to see that again. And uh, hopefully you can grow up to do something about it. That was like uh, two things she said to me and that kind of really kind of stuck in my mind afterwards. Being of a you know, middle lower middle class kind of family, the expectation was that we would grow up and would go to the university and become some sort of electrical engineer or a dentist or a doctor or something like that. That was like the whole mindset, uh, you know, but uh, I've always thought that there is some sort of alchemy that happens when uh, when violence is around somebody. 
know, experiencing through true violence, uh, be it by seeing it, or feeling it, or experiencing it directly. You know, something happens. Something happens to your mind or your brain chemistry. Uh, I think. I think for some reason that experience kind of triggered something in my head. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but something definitely changed in my head when I uh, when I saw that whole uh, situation kind of play out. Ed says something changed in him that. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey. But one thing that has not changed in his life, and that has become almost a calling card in his professional career, is the presence of knives. It's a skill he shares in the classroom, and it comes with obvious risk. And like so many aspects of his sneak reaper skill set, Ed attributes his expertise with edged weapons directly to his mother. I grew up in Tijuana, but we, we also had a farm. We had a pig farm for a long time. Uh, and I got to experience processing meat, uh, processing my own meat, processing uh, you know game that we would hunt at the ranch. Um, so I grew up uh, I, I grew up using blades as tools all my life. Uh, later on in life, I went into when I went into law enforcement. I saw everybody was carrying around blades, but. Uh, most of these guys were city folk. <laughs> uh, they didn't know how to use a knife. They didn't know how to, you know, use it properly. Some of them were cutting themselves, trying to cut, uh, you know, marijuana but, uh, bales, or, or every now and then we'd find these drug loads and they were trying to cut them off and cut themselves. Another aspect of it was that a lot of them were carrying around knives as backup weapons. They carried around karambits or like uh, these ring Filipino knives or. Just odds, odd knives. Everybody was carrying around something different. Uh, eventually, there came a time when I was in a position where I could influence training and practices. Um, and uh, I kind of went into the whole aspect of teaching some of these guys how to standardize what they were carrying. So everybody was carrying around the same thing. Uh, how, to use, how, to, how to better use their tools and, and, and in both as tools and as uh, defensive options. So I kind of went around the block and studied a few systems out there and, and became an instructor myself. Uh, when it came time to carry something for myself, uh, I, uh, I, found quick, I quickly found out that my mom was a big influence because she, she would always carry a, a, germ, a, a German folder she would always carry it tucked in her waistline, kind of folded clothes and tucked in her waistline, and she would kind of kind of put part of her t-shirt in there. So she would pull her t-shirt out, and the knife would drop into her hand. Uh, and she she was fast with it, not, not as a weapon, although she did use it once on on a guy that was harassing my cousin. Uh, but she used it mostly to process meat, to process whatever, to open up bags of cookies for us. You know, she was. She was always using uh, using a knife uh, for something. She, always, she would always open up presents on Christmas and stuff like that. Uh, the knife itself was curved, 
uh, and the handle was curved, then she would she would always grind a divot on the handle so she would know where the edge is. When she was processing something like food or something like that, and she would scream at us to, to behave. She she could she could take her, her eyes off the knife so she couldn't you know, manipulate the, the knife without her uh, having to see what she was doing. Uh, that was a big influence on me, and, and it was purely a tool as far as my mom goes. Uh, then you know I started uh, started being asked for knife designs, and I came up with this uh, design, and that's basically my mom's knife. Um, and now there's a bunch of guys in the Secret Service that carry them. There's uh, Naval Special Warfare guys carry that knife, and and my mom's somewhere up in heaven getting a kick out of how popular that thing is. You know, it's something she would she would make herself. Ed's relationship with one of his brothers, Eric, also seems to have played a major role in his career choices. Eric's influence in Ed's life and his future was nothing like that of their mother and his untimely death, when Ed was only beginning his teenage years, suggests that evil he would come to face later in life might have been lurking from an early age. I was the youngest, um, so my brother Eric, was he was the middle brother. Uh, he passed away when he was 19. My big brother Neto would take care of everything. He was the responsible one. Eric was the daredevil, the party animal, the uh, the social light. Every he had a load of friends. Every time he would make a party, you know, that seemed like a concert. Um, and he was pretty famous and infamous in in Tijuana. You know, everybody knew him. Um, yeah, he had he had a pretty famous friend. He used to hang out with Chalino Sanchez uh, back when Chalino was uh, kind of coming up and getting famous. Chalino Sanchez was another character on the periphery of Ed's childhood that seemed to foreshadow his future career. Sanchez was a rising star in Mexico's music scene in the early 90s and was apparently a friend of Ed's brother. After playing a concert in his hometown of Sinaloa, a name that would become synonymous with cartel violence, Sanchez was found murdered. It's believed that his killers were likely in attendance at his concert that night, and his death, which is still unsolved, had all the markings of a cartel killing. And he would play in some small bars in Tijuana, and my brother would hang around with him, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, I lost a brother. When I was a... Uh, when I was a uh, 13, 14, he, uh, he passed away. And there was this uh, funeral service for him that, uh, that, they, that, that uh, my family had for him. And it was, I mean, it was devastating for my family. Uh, my dad you know, went into a, into a cycle of depression that, uh, that, uh, that lasted for a long time. And it, it, uh, it basically you know, took away a lot of years from my mom uh, as far as uh, as far as her lifespan I, I, I could tell it took a lot I can't imagine what, it, what, it, what it's like to lose a son like that um, there was a, this party like atmosphere at his funeral um, I got to meet at least three girls that said that they were my brother's girlfriend which was pretty fascinating Right, <laughs> um, and I got to meet a lot of people that went on, uh, that came over and uh, scrubbed my head and said, "You kind of look like your brother, you know. Uh, make your brother proud and, and all these all these things." And 
um, a lot of faces, a lot of people that I've never seen. And it was pretty interesting seeing how much of an influence he had on people. A lot of people came over and, and told me, hey, your brother showed me how to ride a bike or your, your brother showed me how to ride a motorcycle. Your, your brother once uh, drove three hours south of here to get me out of a ditch uh, somewhere in the, uh, in the mountains. Um, so that, that my brother was always kind of like that with people. You know, he was he was a, he, he had a lot of life in him. And to this day, every now and then I bump into people and I'm still I'm still Eric's uh, little brother in Tijuana, which is kind of a it's kind of an example of how much uh, how much he touched people. You know, he's been gone for for a long time now and uh, he's still very much alive in the, in the minds of a few people out there. He taught me how to hunt. Uh, he taught me how to shoot a rifle. He taught me how to, sh- how to shoot a gun. Um, and he also taught me how to seek out experiences. Now he would always uh, kind of goat me into doing, you know, things like, hey, you want to jump this ramp with this BMX bike? It's like, no, I don't. That's dangerous. Well, look at me. Now he does it and jumps out this big, uh, this ramp, this BMX bike. And then I do it myself and scrape my arm open and there's a lot of blood. And then, you know, and then he goats me into doing it again a few weeks later. And I, uh, and I finally land it. You know, that, that was his influence on me, you know, being headstrong and kind of taking risks. I was 13. Um, he hung out with a lot of people that are, you know, later on uh, turned out to be <laughs> affiliated. He had a lot of friends that, uh, you know, when you're young and you're, you're a kid, you don't realize who they are. And then then you grow up and then you see them on the FBI's most wanted list cartels, uh, those posters that would have on, on the, uh, on the, on your way across, then you would recognize some of these famous faces later on. Um, so I, I, I'm not too sure. There's always been rumors about it, uh, but all traces of whatever happened, you know, that, that was, that was back in the early nineties. Uh, so I, there's no way of really knowing. Um, all I, all, all I, all I can say is that I, I saw a lot of very, very famous faces and at his funeral that, that later on uh, that later on were featured in you know Netflix series and stuff like that it was around the time when, when this this phenomenon of cartel kind of kind of a narco culture stuff like that was showing up all over the country and I think my, my brother was pro- probably uh, part of that in a, in, a, in a small way or starting to be a part of it what a lot of people don't get is uh Suddenly deciding to go and join the government and become a government agent, uh, that was completely countercultural. That was the most punk thing to do. I grew up skateboarding when I was a teenager. I was more of a punk kid. I was all about that culture. And uh, I like graffiti, I like risky behavior. And there was this weird kind of like uh, aversion to narco culture and to to everything that they would stand for when I was growing up, that was my way of rebelling against it. You know, I, I, I tried to go the conventional route and just be, my whole thing was that I wanted to become a doctor and help people that way. And it was just not in the cards for me. Um, you now things happened, things shifted, uh, and I had to choose uh, a way to serve without. Uh, 
without going that the route that most of my friends went uh, down into. So probably the most countercultural thing that I could do or the most punk thing that I could do was join that uh, police group that I was in. That was, uh, you know, some people out there probably experienced this before when they have this hopeless feeling of not being able to control anything in your life and uh, you're unemployed and you're trying to figure yourself out. So I had one of these moments where I would, uh, you know, basically sleep all day and stay out all night and get drunk with my friends uh, until I started running out of money. So I had to sell my, uh, my medical books. Had a girlfriend back then and um, she, you know, begged me not to make the decision of going into that line of work. And uh, talked to my mom about it uh, before I made the decision. She advised me not to do it herself. She said that there's no parade at the end, there's no medal at the end, and uh, you're 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 the villain, and you're gonna be the villain in the story, not the hero. I kind of looked at I kind of looked at my options one night, um, and uh, just. Weighed, weighed all their opinions and, and my own and and the next day uh, my brother my uh, big brother Neto uh, took me to the recruitment office uh, did my did all the uh, the entry exams to see if I qualified and uh, six months later I got the call to uh, to show up and basically be bust out next on alchemy of violence hear details of one of the most dangerous and unique obstacles that came along with Ed's new career corruption there's only two options plata or plomo you know basically getting shot and killed or getting paid off a lot of people go for plata <laughs> a lot of people go for plata and learn why ed says most people may not realize how bad things have become in the country where he was born in the wrong place at the wrong time anybody that was a military age that a male could get picked up and be confused with somebody else and if they made a mistake about killing you you know 90% of all murders are never solved. Listen to the complete season of Alchemy of Violence on Fox News Podcast Plus starting July 12th. Fox News Podcast Plus is our new subscriber-based offering without commercials, includes bonus content, and exclusive shows like this one, exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Visit foxnewspodcast.com. Click on the Alchemy of Violence image. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.